I'm Paul Lancor with PodTech.net. Brian Hart is here today. He's a managing director at Bearing Point. Brian, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. It's a very difficult time in the financial services sector at this point, and a lot of rethinking is going on. So I'm wondering, in your mind, what are the major issues that financial services organizations are going to have to tackle in light of everything that's gone on in the markets recently? There are a myriad of issues. Uh, clearly, you know, if you you think about the executive suite right now for financial services institutions, um, the the issues that they're dealing with almost on a, a daily basis uh, span the gambit of access to uh, capital, uh, how to fund a an illiquid balance sheet, uh, earnings and managing the street, acquisitions and dispositions, uh, just basic raw market liquidity, and unprecedented degree of government intervention and, and speculation around changes in, in regulation. And at any one point in time in a given year, uh, an executive will deal with one or several of those issues. But this is now becoming a pretty much a daily phenomenon where these are the things that, that people are talking about, are wrestling with, uh, trying to figure out how to uh, save their institutions and potentially capitalize on, on certain market opportunity. All of those issues are very critical for financial service executives to deal with, and they will be dealing with them for some time to come. But those are symptoms of a crisis situation, and ultimately we're going to move away from a time where you know we're, we're worried about core survival and we're focused on more the issues for how we succeed in the marketplace and how we grow and how we remain competitive. A key component of that is going to be capital and how you use it. And capital and how it is used must begin to take on a greater profile in the executive suite and in the front office where people are transacting every day for the reasons that we've talked about in, in other uh, discussions like this where right now balance sheets are extremely thin. There is less and less capital that organizations can allocate to their lines of business to execute against in the marketplace. And the business as usual practices of the past won't necessarily get you home because uh, in the past, people used to trade or lend. And then several days later, or maybe even at the end of the month of the quarter, people would begin to think about what the capital implications are of those decisions that were made. Now, there might be guidelines that guide activity, but at the end of the day, you really don't have a good view of how much capital you've used until some period of time after that transaction actually occurs. Going forward, you know, we think you need to be a little bit more thoughtful about how you do those things uh, to make sure that you're making the absolute most efficient use of your capital day to day. And we have seven strategies to help uh, organizations deal with that. The first one is an analytics strategy. And essentially, if you think of analytics as the core engine that drive how you estimate risk and how you estimate how much capital you should hold against that risk, you think about the analytics you use in your business, there are a lot of inefficiencies in those analytics. And pushing them to their absolute limit is very, very important because, you know, essentially, as you make rough estimates because, you know, it's just where you are in your process, essentially capital begins to leak away from your balance sheet. You, you essentially start to take little bits and pieces of capital that you don't need to take and hold it against specific transactions or pools of risk rather than leaving that uh, to be consumed at a later time. So we believe that, and a lot of institutions spend a lot of energy on analytics, continue to focus on those analytics so that you make absolutely sure that you're holding the right capital against a specific amount of risk. The second issue is around data. 
and data is a critical component to any analytic strategy, no doubt about it. If you've got the data, you can better measure it. But we believe that you need to be very strategic about how you go after data, because data can save you. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples here, but essentially, if you, rather than do what most institutions do, which is let's figure out what data we have and then we'll come up with a measurement framework, come up with your measurement framework, your analytic strategy, and then go after the data that you need. And you can shake out a, a lot of bad estimates that people use because they don't have the data or they thought it might be too expensive to go after it or they never thought to ask if they could get it some other place. And as a result, you have these overly conservative estimates that require you to hold capital that you don't necessarily need to be holding. Uh, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that the system had too much capital in it, but I am suggesting is that it's important to hold capital relative to the types of risk that you have and that it is appropriate. That's very important. So data is a, is a key element of that. The third item is examining how you do business. There are two dimensions to this in my mind. The first dimension is essentially there are, there are structural elements to, for example, how you extend credit that will help you uh, reduce the amount of capital you have, whether it's through guarantees and other mitigants or, or certain ways of securing collateral, whatever that might be. But at the end of the day, you know, thinking about how you structure transactions to be capital efficient uh, are very important. Now, there are market issues that prevent you from doing some things, but there are clearly opportunities to be careful about how you do certain things in terms of structuring that make life capital efficient. The second dimension to that question is, is if you think about what drives a lot of issues around capital, it's loss histories. And we recommend that you get very specific in and implement something that we call a continuous improvement environment around risk management and loss management, such that as you're extending credit and as you incur losses, you get disciplined in terms of examining what caused that loss, address it in terms of how you do business, whether it's, you know, if we had had these elements of structure in there, if we had made sure we closed off these legal angles, if we had uh, been aggressive in, in restructuring this earlier, we would have had fewer losses. Whatever those issues are, find out what they are and change your business process to make sure that those don't happen. And over time, losses will come down. As losses come down, obviously profitability goes up, but the amount of capital you chew into also decreases. Fourth step, better hands in the information of the people who are actually putting risk on your balance sheet. If you're wearing a lot of risk, it's because somebody's out there trading or lending, right? That's the business that financial services companies are in, at least banks and, and trading organizations. If they know how much risk, how much capital they're consuming as they're transacting, that's an important dimension of it. And if you link that up, essentially with another strategy, which is changing the incentive structure, and you match the incentives to that, people who are transacting in the marketplace will seek out capital-efficient, good business uh, that gives the firm uh, returns commensurate with the risk that they're taking. Today, the way the incentive structures work, you know, essentially, you're paid for profit, P&L, and that's how people get their bonuses. And that doesn't necessarily incent people to think about the capital they're consuming or how efficiently they're consuming it or how much risk they're taking on in order to do that. It takes a trader about three days to find a new job when he, when he loses it, so he's going after his bonus. You know, So those two dimensions, we think, are absolutely critical. And then I'll just mention two more, and these represent the sixth and seventh dimension. One is capital arbitrage. You know, There are innovations and synthetic products and, and a variety of other things that give you beneficial capital treatment for the same return profile. And I think that Wall Street is, is uh, very serious about these sorts of things. Always pursue those. They know that it's kind of a given. And lastly, you know, implement you know, an integrated performance and risk management framework so that you have a view at all levels of the organization, executive management, risk management, line of business management, people transacting into what risks are being taken, 
how much risks are being taken, how we're being compensated for each of those risks and whether or not it's enough, and the balance sheet that we're consuming to do it. So one of the things that this crisis has done is exposed weaknesses in the system. And I'm wondering, uh, Brian, if you could please give us an idea of what uh, we learned about, what we have learned about risk management across the sector and what are the trends you've seen, what are the trends that you see emerging to try and uh, correct for some of the problems we've, we've, uh, that have come to bear? You know, there, there, are, there were several issues that I think were exposed as a result of uh, some of the losses. I think first and foremost, those of us that are practitioners in this space know that the most powerful tools in risk management are culture and incentives. And I think, you know, it's safe to say that we know now without a doubt that we have issues in those two areas. And uh, it's a very big deal. But beyond that, if you think about just risk management practices in general, you know, I think we saw a few things. One thing is, is that investment in risk management, there's been a lot of it, hundreds of millions of dollars, but we still have basic issues around risk transparency. Management and decision makers and investors still don't have uh, views into what risks are being taken and how big they are and what they mean to the organization. And uh, when you consider all the investments in Basel II and, and previous regulatory initiatives, you know, it's, it's flabbergasting to consider uh, just how little transparency there is. And no single view on risk performance and capital, as we mentioned in, in our last discussion. Additionally, uh, timely access to real and actionable risk information is still problematic. You know, in the past, people thought that, you know, investments in this regard might be more expensive than uh, any value that they might yield. But during this crisis, a lot of those core capabilities are viewed as absolutely essential. And I'll give you a great example, and I'll just give you one very quick one. You know, in the structured products trading arena, you know, if you're trading mortgages, access to timely and meaningful what-if analysis and stress scenarios just wasn't available to people. And we're talking about things like parallel shifts in the yield curve, tilts, twists, curves, whatever it might be, moving around and perturbing certain variables like HPR or whatever it might be. The bottom line was is that it took a couple of weeks sometimes to turn around these scenarios rather than the next day, and as a result, it affected decision-making. So that's one example. The last area is really this focus on VAR is very misplaced. And those of us who have worked in this space have already have always sort of preached this issue, but essentially too much emphasis was placed on VAR. It has its value, but it misses on key points. For example, again, in structured products, misses on the credit space where the majority of the risk actually is. It completely misses on liquidity, and it really doesn't give you the texture of the risk you're wearing. And we think that, you know, in addition to basic governance issues, which are, which are also essential and need to be addressed, and the incentive structures and the cultural issues, we think we need to address all of those things and things like that to make sure you're getting a good view. And we recommend implementing those capabilities in that single integrated risk and performance measurement framework. Now, when reviewing the ability of an organization to uh, monitor risk and performance in light of what's taken place, what are some of the minimum capabilities that an organization should be considering uh, when doing so? If you think about a, a, a trading business, for example, there are really five things that um, pretty much any manager or risk manager should know about their business. What do I have and where is it at? Essentially, what product do I have um, and what are its marks, whether it's a synthetic or a cash instrument, uh, you know, uh, uh, regardless. Um, it, I have to know what's in my inventory and I have to know what its price is. Secondarily, and you'd be amazed, by the way, at how difficult that is for some businesses to do in a timely fashion in a way that is meaningful for people who are actually looking at this information. The second thing is, 
you know, what risks am I assuming? And, uh, you know, there are core measures that are, that are mandated by uh, the regulators uh, that, you know, you have to sort of run every day. But at the end of the day, those don't necessarily give you the true texture of risk that you're actually wearing. And, in fact, they're incomplete. Um, so having a complete view of what risk you have and having a complete view of how much of it you have is essential. The third piece is, is if I know what all those risks are and how much they are, how am I making my money? Which risks are giving me money? You're not making money unless you're taking risk. So let's match it up and make sure that I am being adequately compensated for the risk I'm taking, and then let's look at that in the context for, of how much capital I'm, I'm consuming. And then, then you have a, a good economic picture of, as the market moves, how am I making my money, that type of thing. The next dimension of it is essentially what has changed. And this is a big challenge that a lot of risk managers have. They see big swings in P&L day-to-day. They see big swings in positions day-to-day. And they don't understand, really, week over week, month over month, what's changing and why. And it's essentially what's changing from buys and sells and what's changing from just a change in market prices perspective. And if you have a framework that gives you all those things we just talked about and then shows you how your book is moving week to week, that gives management a very good sense of, okay, you know, we had a big swing because we had a series of large transactions. That's why we moved versus, wow, you know, we had, you know, we had uh, some sort of a change in a key market rate, and as a result, one of our books tanked or soared through the roof. Th- those are very important things for people to understand to know why P&L is moving and why positions are moving. And then lastly, it is some view as to whether or uh, how effectively the machine, your trading machine, is actually working. If I've decided today that we are, our strategy is essentially to buy loan product, structure it, and sell it off to investors and move product through and become a moving company, and three days later we find that, well, you know, we have inventory piling up and we've actually become a bit of a storage company, you know, that's an issue. So you have to know whether or not the business you've created and the strategy you're pursuing is actually happening. So the health of your machine and whether or not your machine is working. If you can answer those five questions, you have a very good integrated risk and performance management framework. And in addition to looking at increased visibility within the organization, outside of the organization, in response to all of the problems that have been taking place, uh, regulators are going to reassess what's going on. And I'm wondering if you could uh, kind of look into your crystal ball and see what you expect to be down the road in terms of regulation and how an organization could prepare for that. Absolutely. I, I think that the, the regulators are, you know, clearly uh, a couple things. One is, you know, whenever something like this happens, they, they don't get a lot of good press. And whether it's going to be through pressure from Congress or themselves looking at how they do things, there's, there's bound to be changes. And I think, you know, really there are just three quick areas where I think they're going to be very, very focused on the heels of this crisis. Number one is going to be to catch up with innovation and find some way to keep pace with innovation so that they have better transparency into what's happening in the markets and why. Uh, secondarily, really have a, a clearer view of what are the risks that people are taking, why are they taking them, and what does that mean from a regulatory perspective, and how well are those risks being managed. And then thirdly, how do we focus very, very limited you know, regulatory resources to keep a handle on what's going on? And I think, you know, in reality, there's a three-point answer to those questions. Uh, there's going to be lots of details that are worked out here. But number one is they're going to probably have to think about whether or not they can continue to be very prescriptive in terms of regulation or whether they migrate to something that is more principles-based in its focus. So focus on the principles and evaluate how you, you meet these principles versus follow these 10 steps because, as we mentioned earlier, 
culture is a huge part of the effectiveness of risk management and specific uh, actions that the regulators require you to take may or may not contribute to quality risk management given your culture. So focus on principles, not on prescription. Second issue is take a risk-based approach to regulation and examination. Focus your resources where the risks are, and, you know, you can take a pass on certain things. There are certain things you have to do from a legal perspective that are very important, like securities law, et cetera, fine. But if you've got so many exam hours in a year on a given firm in the sector, make sure you make the most of those hours that you're going to spend there. Thirdly, and this is, I think, very, very important, regardless of the outcome of the crisis, it's my hope, at least, that the regulators don't ignore the value of self-regulation. It is a very, very important part of the regulatory process, and it is a very good way for them to make sure that, A, you know, you're keeping pace with innovation. B, the industry is taking responsibility for itself and cleaning up its own backyard. Granted, we may have missed on this one, uh, but there are other areas where there have been tremendous successes, like areas like sales practices and things of that nature. So self-regulation is very, very, very important. And, of course, they'll probably have to revisit certain rules around capital. But regardless, those three things, I think, are going to be uh, big areas of focus at a high level. So why specifically didn't some of the regulatory tricks that are in place ensure that the sector had all of the capital it needed and was able to avert this crisis? And then uh, in light of what didn't work, what do we need to change about those requirements? I think on this topic, there's going to be a tremendous amount of debate. We're likely to hear a lot of calls for a complete redo of rules. And uh, no doubt, you know, they're going to have people who are uh, advocating, you know, packing those rules full of arbitrary floors and all sorts of goodies that essentially pack capital into the system. And uh, I can certainly understand why that would be, given what's happening now. But it is extremely important that we keep in mind a key principle, which is to hold the right amount of capital for the right reasons. So, you know, I, I won't argue that we had enough capital in the system. What I am going to say, though, is that the, the principles behind Basel II got it right. Hold capital for the amount of risk that you have. Now, having said that, within Basel II, we've got some gaps and we have some imperfections in the methods. And we need to fill those gaps and address the imperfections in a way that is very thoughtful. Doing it in a knee-jerk reaction puts us as a country, you know, as a banking sector at risk. You know, we need to consider uh, competitive implications of capital fat organizations that have very unattractive returns on capital and that don't allow people to sort of transact freely. So those, those are important things to get right. But we can fill those gaps, and we must fill those gaps. And we can do it in a way that makes sense. And some of those gaps include basically things like liquidity. It's not included in our current framework for capital, and we need to find some way of thinking about how we can include it. It's the, probably the single biggest issue right now on the street, and it is very, very damaging. Uh, secondarily, you know, there's some gaps in, in some of the older rules around credit risk and certainly some imperfections in how uh, they've prescribed those rules. But there are gaps as well. And one example that comes to mind is in the structured product space where a lot of these problems first started to show themselves, you know, we're not necessarily holding uh, capital against credit risk in traded product. We're holding it for the, the spread risk and the rate risk, et cetera, around the market risk dimensions, the credit is ignored, and credit arguably is the larger risk there. So there are things we can do, and those represent good additions to the shock absorbers for the system and would significantly improve 
the amount of capital we hold, and we can explain why we're holding it. I would also add, though, that we we need not just better shock absorbers, but in in essence, an airbag. (laughs) Because there are going to be times, sometime in the future, we will have another crisis. And we need some mechanism, whether it's through capital or through some other uh, other mechanism, and, and the policy luminaries will, will debate this, no doubt, for a number of years, but some mechanism that provides the right protection for the sector in the event that we have another crisis and our banks are not finding themselves going to competitors, going to sovereign wealth funds, going to foreign governments, going to our own government looking for capital. So I think those are going to be some issues that people need to revisit. I think those are some of the gaps. But I do think that the issue of Basel II, for example, Basel I, to hold market risk, those are going to be topics that are revisited uh, quite a bit here uh, over the next couple of months. Great. Brian, thank you very much for taking some time out and talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. Brian Hart is a managing director with Bearing Point.